It was a good There. Okay. Sorry. I was racing from 163. Here I am. Uh, so I have some of you as sophomores. I can't believe here you are as J2s. That flies so fast. I'm Kim Ackerman. I um, obviously uh, teach in the sophomore um, level as well, but also uh, teach senior community um, population-based um, nursing, so you have me as an S2. But I also, on the side, um, I'm a nurse practitioner and practice in diabetes. And you just never know, the beauty of nursing is that there is so much you can do, and you just never know where it's going to take you. So I graduated from Carroll with my undergrad and um, did med surge nursing. And then did ICU nursing for five years and went back and got my master's in my nurse practitioner and had done, which after this lecture, if you are enjoying this, um, I have a great opportunity for you. I had gone to a nursing conference with my mother, who's a nurse as well. And they had a sign up for the American Diabetes Association about um, working diabetes camp for kids, um, 80 kids with type 1. And I had done 4-H camps forever as a counselor growing up. And my mom said, oh, you should sign up. I had no kids. I wasn't married. Um, no, I was married, but no kids. And so it gave me a week away from my husband, I guess. Uh, <laughs> so I signed up. And I went back for nine years as a counselor to diabetes camp. Do the medical uh, part of the camp, and then I always, I always say that I started having my own camp. Like most of you know I have four kids, and um, but loved it and fell in love with um, fell in love with the fact and the respect that I had for these parents and what everybody was going through with diabetes. And then um, did diabetes uh, practice di pediatric diabetes for about two to three years, and then got pulled into hospital diabetes and was kind of covering the hospital for a while doing diabetes. And then realized I couldn't be like three places at one time. So then I moved to adult diabetes, and now I've been in adult diabetes and endocrinology for eight um, years, where I practice right now um, as well. Um, but the other cool thing about diabetes is it's always changing and that's the other thing I love um, about it um, so and we'll see I did throw in I see most of you have printed off the slides there are a few extra slides in here but they're nothing like my websites are on there um, but there's nothing they're just pictures so um, of some of the cool new technology and things that are out there so as you can see of course we always list our objectives mainly we're describing the difference between type 1 and type 2 signs and symptoms what you're going to see um, of these kiddos um, when you are um, working with them, both type 1 and type 2. Um, what is your role in the clinic, hospital, and community setting, depending where you work, because that's also the beauty of nursing. You may find that hospital nursing is not for you, and you want to be out in the community uh, being a school nurse or uh, being a public health nurse, um, covering the entire county Stowater County, Muscle Shoal County, doing all of their school nursing. Um, or in the clinic, checking these kids in for their every three month visit, as they should be coming every three months. Um, treatment regimens, and then, as said, two pieces of technology have quite a few other pieces in there. I'm not going to give you a whole background of pathophysiology. A, I don't have enough time, 
and um, you've had that before. But what I will, oh boy, I always get this in the morning, so this coffee is just what I needed. I feel much better. Beta. So why do I say beta? What is the deficient in diabetes? What are we missing? The beta cells out of the pancreas. And if you can keep that in mind, I admit when I graduated from nursing school, type 1, type 2 diabetes was just not really my thing. Never thought I'd work in it. Um, and didn't have a whole lot of knowledge about it because we just didn't see much of it. Um, I don't know, have any of you had any kiddos in DKA or taken care of any kiddos in DKA diabetic ketoacidosis in the hospital yet? So some of you have got to see that a little bit. Um, but the biggest thing to remember, type 1, adult and child, this goes for. Type 1, they do not make insulin, okay? Their pancreas is that part of their pancreas, I should say. You know, this pancreas, as you can see, hiding behind the stomach, it has a lot of functions, and we have to remember that. When we tell patients or people their pancreas is, is kaput, only the part, when we're talking about diabetes, only the part that produces their insulin. Okay, remember that that's only about 1 to 3% of their pancreas. The other part of their pancreas is doing all the exocrine function, you know, controlling, you know, producing those enzymes to break down. So if they have pancreatitis, though, like as an adult, associated with their, their diabetes because they didn't take care of it, <clears throat> then we do have issues, and we are worried about. That's why they end up on enzymes and things of that nature, but that's a whole other discussion. <clears throat> but the biggest thing to remember, so type 1, when it comes to diabetes, they do not make insulin, so we have to give it exogenously, meaning from the outside in. Type 2, they make insulin initially when they're diagnosed. They make insulin. Their body just doesn't know how to use it appropriately. That's when we come with insulin resistance and things of that nature. So if you can kind of keep that in your mind, <clears throat> it makes the, the issues of diabetes and discussion of it um, much easier. Sorry, I've just been lecturing for an hour in my other class. I just throw out these um, statistics, and I know they're on your slides. I guess it did just blow up on there. Um, to talk about the prevalence of it and, and why it's a big deal, 30.3 um, million Americans, 9.4% of the population, had diabetes in 2015. These are still the newest statistics. Approximately 1.25 million American children and adults have type 1 diabetes. The big deal there is the cost associated with it, okay, when we look at. And there's not a whole lot we can do when it comes to prevention of type 1, especially in kiddos. It is, we'll talk about the basis behind it, but a lot of it is um, genetic and or autoimmune. So if you're going to get it, you're going to get it. You know, there's not a lot you can do to protect yourself from it, and a lot of kids don't know if they're going to get it. And I have some stories surrounding that. Um, about, it's on the very bottom, so not everyone can see that, 193,000 Americans under the age of 20 are estimated to have diagnosed diabetes, so 0.24% of that population. Um, and you have to remember, under the age of 20, um, have diabetes, diagnosed diabetes, Everyone under the age of 20 responsible and does everything that they should do and be told to do and have insurance to afford everything they're supposed to do and told to do. So even though that is only 0.24% of that population, um, 
there's a lot of issues um, that surround that. Um, I, I, this fast facts, and I know that it is blurry, um, but my, my point to this slide is not that, you know, knowing all these statistics and everything on it, but, you know, when you are working with these kiddos or when you are working with families, the American Diabetes Association, that's where this comes from, um, is a great resource and reference for families. You know, everything is um, research-based as well as gives them all sorts of, you know, there's meal tips, there's insulin tips, there's information about insulin pumps, about technology, about injections, there's ways to get on blogs for them to, and we all know blogs are good and bad, but there's ways for them to reach out to others who are dealing with these issues. Because as you will, I go through this, you will see the psychological impacts of type 1 diabetes, not only on the kid, but the family. Because I would always tell those kids, this is not just their diagnosis, by any means. You know, no kid's diagnosis is really just theirs. But it impacts everyone that they come in contact with. Their best friend, their uh, teachers, their uh, different organizations they're involved in, grandparents, wherever they stay. So they go stay at a friend's house, the family has to know. So when we see these kiddos in that come to us, what do they look like? What are we what are we looking for? So some of the things that you might be asking of this kid, um, polyuria, which is what? Hmm? Excess urea. Yep. So peeing a lot. Um, I'm gonna tie that right into this nocturia. You know, one of the one of a classic signs is a mom or dad who says um, you know, this is a seven-year-old kid who's been potty trained since they were three. And now the parents are like, and, but I don't, I don't get it. They've been potty trained since they were three, and they've been wetting the bed every night, two times a night, for the past, you know, month, along with them looking cachectic and everything else that goes with it. But that can be a big trigger to you. Um, polydipsia? What's that? Yes, so thirsty, so they're constantly drinking, they're constantly peeing, maybe wet in the bed. Significant amount of weight loss, and in a kid, you know, typically your type 1 presentation is going to be a kid who doesn't have any insulin resistance anyway, so they're this little skinny, itty-bitty kid, really thin, small, low BMI, um, who doesn't, can't afford to have any weight loss. They're looking pretty sickly. Hopefully you catch them before that may or may not have a family history. So when you see them physically, you know, these are some of their, their clinical symptoms they might tell you about. When you see them physically, you're looking at signs of dehydration typically, which might be what? There are signs of dehydration, even in a kid. It's only nine Dry mucous membranes. Yeah, they're not. They, you know, no tearing. No, they're a baby, and we see them in babies. We see it in babies too. Sunken fontanelles. You know, eyeballs sunken in. Heart rate might be elevated. Okay, so we're seeing these kids looking dehydrated. Um, they're they're ill. I mean, I saw little boys carried in that are healthy 15-year-old boys being carried in by their um, 
dad because, you know, one of the classic stories, you know, when it comes to, well, how did they get this? Uh, I had a family come in and, and young, he was the youngest of three brothers and everybody in the family, especially this time of year, had gotten influenza, not influenza, it was the stomach flu at that time. Um, so everybody had got, gone through the whole house, mom, dad, two brothers, the third little brother got it. Mom's like, I, he just can't get rid of it. He's continually puking, he just, just continually sick. I don't, I don't get it. And, but that was the virus, you know, he was destined, I would say, to get type one, but that's the virus that tipped him over the edge. To get his um, to get his diagnosis, actually. Um, so what are we going to do um, laboratory-wise? So we've seen him clinically, physically, uh, but how are we going to confirm it? And I know you're not drawing the labs, but you're going to see the labs come back, and you're going to be calling that provider, saying, "Hey, A1C. What's an A1C?" I know you know because you had med surge already too. So what's an A1C? So it's an average of their blood sugars over the past three months. And exactly, we can get it because that, that hemoglobin molecule, the sugar attaches to it. So we look at the average of their blood sugars over the past three months. What is a normal hemoglobin A1C in someone? Kids and adults are the same. So 5% if their pancreas works. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at five to, 5 to 6. I'll give them even up to 6. Um, if their pancreas is working, absolutely normal. Uh, so we're looking at anything about that. And these kids, and then it, it correlates to a number. So like for example, 7.5 is about average blood sugar of 140 over the past three months. Um, you're gonna see these kids come back with A1Cs. Did they draw A1Cs on your kiddos that you were took care of with DKA? Did you see any of those? So some of these kiddos that come in in DKA, they're gonna have an A1C of 14. So our average blood sugar over the past three months has been running 400. Um, yet, they feel fine is what they're going to tell you. I would hear it all the time. Or they'll bring their blood sugar log into me, and I'll be looking at their blood sugar log, and I'm like, wow, your blood sugars are perfect every time you check them. 120, 130, 120, written out three times a day, and she never varies. I'm like, Get her A1C back, and it's 14. Like, dear, I'm not stupid. <laughs> I know this was a lie, but I have another story about her. She turned her life around, and it was pretty amazing. Um, so we're also going to get, so that A1C, we're going to get a random blood sugar just to see what they are. Two fasting blood sugars less than 120, over 126, I should say, for diagnosis, or a random blood sugar greater than 200. So if any one of you... I'll freak you all out. Any one of you poked your blood sugar right now and it was above 200, you would have a diagnosis of diabetes. Okay, because random um, should never go above 100 or 200. Urine glucose, we really shouldn't have any urine in our glucose, so we're going to get a urine on them. If we're having trouble, especially when we go to differentiate, now remember this is a kid with type 1, but if we're trying to differentiate, you may see this, you may not differentiate between type 1 and type 2. Occasionally we'll do what we call a pro-insulin, and I'm not going to get into all the, the mechanics of the pro-insulin molecule, but the biggest thing to think is the pro-insulin molecule is up here, and then it cleaves into a C-peptide molecule, into two separate C-peptide molecules. And so we might do a pro-insulin 
to really see how much insulin they're creating, okay? Because if they're not creating any insulin, we have a diagnosis of type 1. But in a kid with type 2 who's like, gosh, your, your BMI is a little bit on the, you know, you're running a BMI of 28, but your blood sugars, I, I just don't know. We might run a pro-insulin to see how much insulin they really have, um, they're really making. I do that a lot with adults. Um, a GAD, glutamic acid de de decarboxylase, we can draw that here now. It's an autoantibody. There's autoantibodies that are markers for diabetes. There's 17, I think it is. Don't quote me on that. Could be different now that they've identified. Markers for type 1 diabetes. But we only draw for about five or six of those in the lab. And one of the most common is the GAD um, autoantibody that we'll draw for. Um, a C-peptide level, like I said, you had your pro-insulin, then it cleaved into a C-peptide. Um, so a level below 0.6 uh, nanograms per mil is a suggestive of type 1 diabetes. And then if it's above, it's suggestive of type 2. Um, mainly because what it's telling us is that you have some beta cell function. Why I don't draw a C-peptide? Because it's easier to draw and it's cheaper right away is because um, it's influenced by the amount of sugar. So if they actually do produce a little bit of, of um, insulin and bring their blood sugars down with that, it's going to influence that. So there's some different antibodies there. Like I said, you're not drawing those, but just to know, I guess, the point of that being, there are antibodies out there that show markers for type 1 that they can draw. Sometimes, those of you who get new diagnosis in the hospital, they'll draw them, but you won't ever see them until to come back until they go to the hospital cause some of, or until the clinic, because some of those are sent out to Mayo, or depending where they're sending their labs to. Typical presentation, like I said, it's going to vary. This is your kid with type 2 now, okay? So that was all kind of type 1. Your presentation for type 2 is going to vary. We might see some weight loss we also might see some weight gain. Because even in type two, these kids um, can still have the polyuria and polydipsia uh, as well. Uh, unfortunately, typically we see it the opposite way, is a weight gain. How about acanthosis nigricans? Anybody ever heard of that or seen that? Again, kids and adults alike. So this is a pigment change that we will see um, typically around, around the neck, under the armpits, occasionally in the groin. Um, and this is a, a, a discoloration of the skin. It's kind of brown. I remember a kid that had got diagnosed with type 2, and mother said when we pointed that out to her on the neck, she said, well, that now makes sense. And she felt kind of silly because I kept scrubbing that, thinking it was dirt, <laughs> and it wasn't. It was a natural pigment change due to the increased blood sugar um, in the body. Um, typically doesn't disappear, might lessen uh, once we get blood sugars under control. Um, and then, of course, like I said, you might have polyuria, you might have polydipsia. Um, and it's, it's in relation to the insulin resistance that they do have. So typically, you will not see the acanthosis nigricans on a type 1. Diagnosis does vary. We're going to get a history on them. What kind of things do you think we're going to ask in our history of a kid that presents to us with potential type 2 that might vary from type 1? Family history of type 2. 
Okay. Family, or family, family history type two. What else? Absolutely. So this might be the kid that we're asking, you know, what are they eating? Why are they gaining weight? Where do they eat lunch? Who prepares for food for them? Um, when did they start gaining weight? How long has this been going on? What kind of physical activity do they get? Um, physical exam, like I said, acanthosis, nigricans, and their BMI, the body mass index. <coughs> And then labs, so we'll get, go right back to that A1C, the things I talked about with type 1, 2. Random blood sugars, parenthesis, and C-peptide. Um, so treatment of type 1 in your peds population. So the, the biggest thing we're going to do for treatment in type 1 is what do you think? Yeah, so they need insulin. That, unfortunately, and every... Every parent will look at you and say, isn't there anything else? Can we do anything else? Um, and they're, they're going to try to find alternative methods, and I, I, I'm, not, I'm not opposed to them looking into that, but physiologically, you guys, they don't make insulin. I mean, there's just no other alternative. The next question is going to be, is this going to be for life? Can I reverse this? And what would your answer be? Any ideas? I know you all read up on everything you needed to know about type 1 diabetes. No, they need insulin for the rest of their life. Okay, and so that's where we're hoping hasn't happened yet that stem cells and pancreas transplants and all of that start becoming more effective. But we aren't there yet. But we do have all sorts of ways to help them. So they need to start monitoring their blood sugar. How often do you think? So my pancreas is fortunately, around Halloween, I think it's on overtime right now, but it's kicking out, you know, response to my Kit Kat or breakfast or whatever I ate 24-7. Plus it's also kicking out insulin to just do daily. Remember, insulin is a hormone. So insulin also helps control a lot of our bodily functions. It has a little bit to do with our blood pressure, has a little bit to do with our thyroid, you know, all sorts of things. So it's a hormone. So it is constantly in production. So we not only do they need, and I'm going to show you a picture, they need two types of insulin. They need a basal insulin to compensate for all day long, and then they need bolus insulin. I should have asked before I started, or if anyone wants to raise their hand, anybody type one in here? or has a family member. Okay. So we have lots of options. So blood sugar monitoring. They really should be checking their blood sugar at least four times a day, if not more, if they're active. You know, we're looking at four to eight times, really, a day. Uh, because we need to know what their blood sugars are doing. Um, when we give them insulin, there's various, various ways we can do it. We can either do it in a syringe, you know, where we draw it up out of the vial, um, an insulin pen, which is heavenly to be able to take, you know, their active kid or adult, really. Um, and, you know, a rancher, you can put it in his pen, in his pocket, take it with him wherever he goes, because that's the issue, is I don't want to have to carry my insulin with me. Um, pumps, an insulin pump, I have some pictures for you. 
Um, as well as sensors. So sensors are continuous glucose monitors. Monitor blood sugar every five minutes throughout the entire day. A new pump out there, Medtronic has a new pump out there that actually is, is getting the closest we've come so far. It's a lot of work is the issue. We don't just slap these things on. But that actually shuts off when blood sugars get too low and it will actually give a little bit of extra insulin now. They call it auto mode when it knows their body system. So it will actually manipulate their, their um, insulin for them. It's pretty cool. Um, so we have two types of basal insulin, which you have probably seen last year, Levimir or Lantus. There are some newer ones out there, <coughs> typically not approved in pediatric population yet, like Basaglar, Tugeo. Um, so you're going to stick mainly to Levimir and Lantus. We're usually looking at half a unit per kilogram, which you aren't um, really dealing with. Little kiddos, small doses, you guys. We're talking, you might see a kid go home on two units of Lantus, and you're thinking, really? This two units I'm trying to draw up is going to do something for them? But that's why it's so critical that they get diabetes education, and they're taught how to give those insulin injections correctly. Things like, don't give it through their clothing, you know, especially teenagers. Give it through, like my, I didn't realize I was wearing denim today, but a denim skirt. Think about um, the insulin needle itself, how small it is, and then we give it through clothing, they're not going to get any, okay? And so th those are the kind of things we have to think about. Um, so then we're going to look at, so that's basal. That's what's going to run in them. I have some pictures. Ooh, some pictures, too. Um, but that's what's going to kind of be this constant steady stream. And then bolus insulin, not that you can see this because this pen isn't working, um, <coughs> is breakfast, lunch, and dinner, typically, to help compensate for what they're eating. And it's what we call fast-acting, wish it could be faster, Novolog, Humalog, or Epidra. Really, there's only about a zinc molecule difference between Novolog and Humalog. So if parents say to you, they come into the clinic and they say, gosh, unfortunately, so-and-so's family member died and gave us all this Novolog insulin. Because insulin, you guys, a vial of insulin, a vial of basal, of Lantus insulin is about $300 out of pocket. And these are life-sustaining medications. I don't know how many of you they did. They had a big, a big, they were running a big, before, of course, all the election stuff came on TV, um, some ads about um, the cost of insulins and these life-saving medications and how you fall in the, you fall, you're an 18-year-old who can't get Medicaid anymore, don't have a job, how are you going to afford this? You know, so we have kids who we give half their insulin one day, might even skip a day, another half the next day, just to make it to the end of the month. Do you think they're cared about what their UNC looks like? They're just trying to survive. Um, and then this intermediate, and I only bring this up. These are old. Did anybody see these or work with NPH or R on the floor? Has anybody even heard of them? <laughs> Stacy and I know what they are, and I still, we still use them, because as you will see, let me show you my picture a little better. So here's Glargine is Lantus. I know this is fuzzy here, but it's got this straight line. Yes, I know down here. It all depends who makes your slides. So 
remember whenever you're research, doing studies, when you're looking at research articles, it's always good to know who wrote the study and who looked at it. Um, but, so, Lantus insulin, pretty much straight line. Dedimer is Levimer. Again, I'm pretty sure Lantus wrote this slide. But it makes it look like it has this big peak in the middle. For the most part, it is a pretty straight line as well. Um, NPH. So here's your, let me step back though. Here's your Novolog, your Novolog, Humalog, and Apidra. Notice they, you give them at hour zero. They're working within two, gone by four hours, okay, because this is a whole day. So they're gone by about four hours. Regular insulin starts working in about 30 minutes, and it lasts up to eight hours. Versus NPH insulin kind of covers through lunchtime, hint, hint, and lasts into the evening. Why would I give a kid NPH insulin? Possibly. Exactly. So then they don't have to give a shot at school. So why wouldn't I do that for every kid? So the issue is, every you have to be even with an adult. In order to like match that completely to what you're doing, you need to eat the same thing every day. Your activity needs to be the same thing every day. Your hormones need to be the same every day. Like everything needs to be the same. Is that? optional or ideal no. so we might do it just so they don't have to give that shot at school why might we not want to give a shot at school like they need it why wouldn't I have them do it so life-saving medication resource issues like a nurse has to give it and then maybe a nurse isn't there every day every hour and then I would assume that kid would have to be pulled from class pulled from lunch it just Totally. They already have snacks in the classroom. They have to check their blood sugars. They, they get to have a snack when nobody else does. They never, which, little guys think that's awesome. Like, my seven-year-old just got a cast last night, and he thinks, he cried last week because he couldn't have it. He obviously isn't having it for a broken leg. They're doing serial casting on him. So he cried last week because he couldn't have a cast. Now he's in seventh heaven because he gets one. So your little guys think it's cool that they get an extra snack. Whereas your teenagers are like, really? Leave me alone. Don't, don't, I don't want to. Nobody needs to know I have diabetes. So, yes, they don't want to be, we don't want to single them out if we don't have to. And huge resource issue. If you live in Ecolaca, Montana, there's one school nurse covering, well, even Columbus, Montana, there's one school <coughs> nurse who covers the entire county. So she has... 15 schools to cover. So then it comes to delegation of this. And I know you're not to delegating yet, and you'll learn more about that, because as I told my sophomores this morning, everything is delegated to nursing students. Someday you're going to get to delegate things. So we get into some delegation rules, and who feels comfortable giving that child insulin. And if something happens, who's going to be liable? And, and then we come down to, okay, well, mom needs to do it, but we're farmers and ranchers, we live 40 miles away from school, so now I'm going to have to come in, give the shot, go back home. You know, there's so many issues that surround this to be able to get, um, so to getting them some decent coverage. 
Um, okay, so then there are, just be so you know, and you'll see this more in adults, not in kids, but there are split mixed insulins that have two insulins in one, and I do use those. I have used them in some teenagers just because they won't take their insulin, and if I can get them to even take two shots a day. Um, you know, diabetes, I will always say, I've always said it, it's all about baby steps. Um, we just go very, if I can get you to go from checking your blood sugar one time a day to two times a day, I've accomplished my goal for potentially a whole year. Um, U500, I just want you to be, to be aware that it's there. We do not use it in a pediatric population, but it is, it is U1, similar U100, <coughs> but five times as strong, okay? So you, it's five times the strength. Because in adults, not gonna lie, I have patients who are using 500 units of insulin a day. Um, we are constantly thinking about cost. We are constantly thinking about insurance. Because what happens, <coughs> to some of these people is, you know, we have to remember we're healthcare providers and we, we're constantly in this. Whereas parents aren't, and some parents are not anywhere near the educational level that you are or even where you were when you left high school. And so things like running their blood sugar strips through insurance, really, I can do that? That's covered? I'm not saying that you have to be the one that, that does all that, because you might not have time, but you are going to be the one that can find the resource for them and say, hey, let's get you hooked up with the caseworker. If you're really struggling financially, let's bring the financial representative in and see what we can do. You know, it's all about collaborative practice, and diabetes is definitely one. Bringing the pharmacist in to visit with the family about how these medications work. Um, things of that nature. So type 2, yes, treatment, really, unfortunately, there's not much option. Um, your only option really orally is metformin. I was able once to squeeze by, now it's not even used anymore, on a 17-year-old, I wrote this really fancy letter as a, a provider and was able to get it squeezed by on a 16-year-old because he was close some other orals, but really your only option is metformin um, and insulin. My next question there, when do we start insulin? Why wouldn't I want to start insulin right away? What's the downfall to insulin? This is especially on a type 2 kiddo. Well, they're producing insulin, so why would we want to give them but they're not using it correctly. Right, they're not using it. What happens exactly with insulin, though? What's the other side effect of it, especially in our type 2 population? It has to do with their weight. It causes weight gain. Okay? And so I don't want to have to use insulin until I absolutely ha And I, I say that lightly because in my adult population, the goal of using insulin also, though, is to protect those beta cells. So we don't want their beta cells overworking. That's in an adult population. So I'm going to be proactive about their insulin, which some don't like to hear. But when they hear that we can maybe get them on less insulin in the long run. But with kids, this is a kid who already has a BMI of, say, 35, maybe even 40. If I start insulin, the potential for weight gain is there. So I really, really 
want to include my diabetes educator, um, which might be you. You don't have the CDE, the Certified Diabetes Educator, behind your name, but you've been doing this long enough, you are the diabetes educator, okay? And so you're going to, or the dietitian, you're going to work with them on, you know, their diet appropriate, you know, what have you, what, let's, let's go back to the, the basic plate method, you know, we cut our plate in half, half of it is our protein, the other half we cut into quarters, then we have our starch, um, excuse me, half of it's green leafy vegetables, the other quarter is our starch and our protein. Going back to those basics, going back to what can we do for activity, you know, the word exercise for a lot of these kids is, is like not only foreign but despised. And so, you know, what can we do to get them more active, you know? The thing we have to remember, these are kids. Are they doing the grocery shopping? No. Yeah, sure. Every single one of us was excited to get away from mom and dad and go to the five and dime on the corner and, and grab whatever for lunch. We know that's going to happen, and we have to let them be kids. But when it comes to meals and when it comes to what they eat at home, who is doing the majority? And so that's why this is not just the kid. This is incorporating everyone they're with. Okay. It's tough, and I just met with some school nurses last week. You know, we want them to be kids. We don't want them to be singled out. You know, everybody brings a cupcake in for the birthday. Should you and I eat that cupcake? Probably not. I mean, we don't, we don't need it any more than all the kids do. But we don't want to single that kid out either for that. They just have to take insulin with it, especially if they're type 1. So, um, there's all those insulins. They're in your slide. Um, or in your slides for you, just some different <coughs> pictures of them. One of the things you're going to see um, as uh, in the hospital, typically, and you might see it in the clinic. Uh, so, how this would, would relate to all of you, depending where you're at. In the hospital, this is the kid you're going to be taking care of who comes from the ED or comes to the ED and is sick as a dog with all these things that are listed here. In a community setting, say in school nursing, you might be dealing with the kid who's in DKA because, you know what, they're not checking their blood sugars, they're not taking their insulin for you as the school nurse, um, or the public health nurse, whatever you're doing. Or if you're in the clinic, this might be the kid that comes to their appointment and looks horrible. Or as an A1C of 14 and you check their urine glucose and it's out of, out of control. So we're going to admit them. So this is the kid who has hyperglycemia or high blood sugar. Hypoglycemia is low. So this is someone who has high blood sugar. So, you know, these are typically going to be kids that have blood sugars of 300, 400. Hyperketonemia, so they're producing ketones. Typically, we do not produce ketone bodies. So that's an abnormality. And they're in metabolic acidosis. So what happens is we have this insulin deficiency. Um, and there's some great, I was going to put one in here, but it just added a ton of time, so I decided not to. But short, there's some great YouTube videos on this. But we have this insulin deficiency. So they are, for some reason, whether they decided not to take their insulin, they're sick, meaning that blood sugars are higher than they normally are just because bacteria and sugar love each other. So if they get an illness, they get a cold even, 
Some kids respond with elevated blood sugars. The fortunate part is this, this great symbiotic relationship, blood sugar infection, blood sugar, and they just eat on one another. Until we do something, whether it's insulin or an antibiotic, if it's a, a bacterial infection, to stop it. So for some reason they have insulin deficiency. Like I said, it might be on their own doing, but it also might be an illness. Because they don't have any insulin, they need to metabolize. Our body says, hey, I have no energy. I gotta get it from somewhere. So the, the body then goes to our fats and amino acids for energy because it doesn't have the glucose. Usually, remember insulin is the key that unlocks the door to our cells, of our brains, our muscles, our, our organs. So if we don't have the insulin to unlock the cells, the sugar just floats through them and doesn't get where it needs to be. So it says, hey, I need something. So it breaks down these fats and amino acids. We have the FFA or free fatty acid levels increase and then those are converted to ketones. Normally insulin would, would, would stop the progression of those ketones or the ketogenesis. So what happens then is we get this buildup of acetone, so we get our metabolic acidosis, and what you will see with kids is with the acetone, so the acetone gives them this sweet fruity breath. Did any of you have the chance to smell that on these kiddos that you took care of? Once you smell it, you'll remember it forever. It's very this very sweet smelling breath, so that's from the acetone. And then you get these rest, these Kussmaul respirations. They're trying to blow off that acetone with these Kussmaul respirations, okay? Um, so we have the sweet, sweet, fruity breath, high blood sugars, Kussmaul respirations. We have all this, they're so hyperglycemic that then we have this osmotic diuresis, so we have all this urinary loss of water and electrolytes. We also have some loss of ketones, which are also providing us, so, that, so that's providing them energy, but remember that we're going to probably check their ketones in their urine, and that's where we're going to see positive ketones. <coughs> they have the urinary loss of sodium, however, initially, when you're looking at labs, you know, I think, like Stacy said years ago, or when I started giving this lecture, when you are working with a kid in DKA, you are like constantly changing those IV fluids because initially things look normal and the minute we get insulin back in, like for example, um, and this insulin is replaced in the cell, initially they look hyperglycemic, uh, or excuse me, initially they look uh, hyperkalemic but as we replace the insulin and we push that potassium back into the cell, then they're gonna look hypokalemic. So if we've taken the, the potassium out and now we're gonna be shoving it back in. So you're constantly, we're gonna add some dextrose to their fluids or <coughs> pull some dextrose from their fluids. You're gonna constantly be changing things. And what are we looking at with hypokalemia, hyperkalemia, I mean, what are the other things we're worried about then. Yeah, cardiac abnormalities as well. You know, so, so these kids can really be sick. Some of them are mild DKA, where their labs haven't really changed much. We caught them early. Um, these might be the kids that they come into the clinic and they check their urine ketones and they're like, oh, you have some ketone bodies and you need some fluids. Um, 
like I said, it might be they didn't do a thing, they just got behind the eight ball on an infection, not to their misdoing, they were trying their darndest. Uh, versus some of these kids, and I don't know if you had some of them, they're kind of what we call repeat offenders. They have been in DKA a few times in their life. Um, and our other worry is this cerebral edema um, from this constant change in their electrolytes. We're worried about signs and symptoms of cerebral edema. So loss of consciousness, lethargy, nausea, vomiting. Um, inability to converse. So treatment for DKA is this volume expansion, getting those fluids back in them, replacing insulin because it started as an insulin deficiency. We're preventing that hypokalemia, uh, but watching it closely because it's going to look like they're, they're hyper, and then as a minute we get some of that insulin in there, they're going to drop. Um, and then prevention of that cerebral edema. So what is your role as the nurse when you are looking at them, or working with them, I should say? So there's kind of some different settings I've provided you. So in the hospital, you know, you are, you might be doing the initial education or you might be getting the diabetes educator in there. So for those of you who love diabetes and find it very fascinating, you can also become an RN CDE. So what that is, is it is someone who practices in diabetes. You have to you take an exam, um, but you have to have a thousand contact hours with patients with diabetes prior to even be able to sit for the exam. The kicker is you're not a pediatric CDE or an adult CDE. You're everything. So even if you practice in the pediatric, for example, that's why I didn't get it. I was only practicing in the pediatric population at that time, so I didn't know anything about adults. Um, and then now. I just haven't done it. Um, but you can get that. The difference there is some of the billing and things that can be done there as a CDE. Um, so you might be providing their education, teaching them how to use a blood sugar monitor. You might be yourself getting on the American Diabetes Association website if this isn't something that you do on a regular basis. You're working at a hospital in Glendive, Montana. Um, and here comes a new kiddo and they can't get in to see a provider up here because really the only diabetologist, pediatric endocrinologist is in buildings in the state of Montana. Um, you might be seeing them for repeated stays of their DKA. They might just come in to get rehydrated. They know they're behind the eight hole, they've had the flu bug, blood sugars look okay, they just need some fluids to get them through. Or they have an illness. Um, in the clinic setting, what would you be doing? Um, again, education. You're going to help with their prescriptions, making sure they're covered, um, their supplies, making sure they have everything they need, blood sugar monitors, you know, going kind of head to toe of diabetes. What do you need? Okay, you need to be able to give your blood sugar, or you need to be able to check your blood sugars. You need to be able to give your insulin. Do you have all the syringes, the pens, pen needles? You know, going through everything they would need. Um, as well as support. Um, for Unfortunately, uh, might be support of even having the social worker involved. I've seen families driven apart because of the diagnosis of diabetes, because maybe mom and dad don't agree on how things should be handled, and we're in a divorced family um, as well. 
Um, and then a community setting. Uh, education. It might be educating, like I said, I just worked with the school nurses last week uh, talking about how to, uh, some of the new technology and what you do with it. Um, you might be educating staff about signs and symptoms of hypo, low blood sugars, hypoglycemia, as well as hyperglycemia. Okay, what do you do? Um, how do we keep this kid safe? Um, safety at school is every, everybody's goal, but especially a school nurse's goal. So, we have all sorts of technology and waves of the future. Um, so we have insulin pumps and sensors. These are just different names you might hear out there and see. Animus, Medtronic, they all have their, their own intricacies, just like when you go to buy a new car, everybody's gonna tell you theirs is better and, and does this versus that one does that. But it all, what I can say about diabetes is, you know, it all, it's all dependent what the kid does and what the kid wants. For example, the only, the only uh, waterproof pump right now um, is the Animus <coughs> pump. Medtronic's new one might be, but the Animus pump. So if they're a swimmer, that would be the one they'd want. You know, things like that. So some of those little details will help them. Omnipod does not have any tubing associated with it. They just wear it on the back of their arm. Unfortunately, they have to carry a little um, pod with, or not a pod, a PDA with them to run their blood sugars. And so not only do they have a phone, but they also have this PDA and they can't, they haven't figured out how to put it all in one yet. There's some funky thing about the Bluetooth technology. They're getting closer because as you'll see, some of these others are making it work. So it'll, it just depends. It depends on what they want. Um, and again, you're not needing to know all the differences because that's not your job, but your job is to just know that there is technology out there and it can do different things. Um, here is the Dexcom. So I put on the bottom, sensor only. So what this is, if you think about when I check a blood sugar on a blood sugar meter, let's say I check, of course I would try pretend it doesn't work. I check it 8 o'clock in the morning, and I'm right here, and I check it noon, and I'm up here, and I check it 4 o'clock, my blood sugar's down here, you know, saying this is 100, this is 200, and usually you'll have one up here that's 300 at 8 o'clock, just for example. Well, how do I know what my line between those looked like? Did it look like this? Did it look like this? Did it look like this? What, what did it look like? Because if my blood sugar is normal at 4 o'clock, but at noon, I was 400, say. And then in two hours, we'll say 1,400, I fell down to a normal number. Well, in two hours, I fell 300 points. I'm going to treat that a heck of a lot different. You know, maybe I'll not take, maybe I'll take a snack because I'm falling, versus if in the middle here, I fell down and I'm on my way back up to 100. So I went from 400 
down to 60 at 1, but it, I'm on my way back up. Gosh, I might not have a snack then, okay? So a sensor gives you that line in between. It allows you to plot your blood sugars every five minutes so that you know how to adjust, how to take carbs or maybe not take carbs, okay? Or how to give your insulin. Or you know what? I'm falling and I'm headed to basketball practice. Gosh, I'm not, I'm gonna, not only am I not gonna give insulin for my food, but I'm gonna have a bigger snack because I'm also headed to practice. So this is the size, the actual <coughs> sensor itself. They all sit, I tell this story, and now I look back at it and I kind of laugh. So I remember when I first started working in the ICU 18 years ago, um, we had a patient come in who was on an insulin pump. And all of us, there were like four of us, so it wasn't just me, but we're like, oh my gosh, we, we, we got to get him back to the OR. We, how do we get that pump out? Okay. They're not an implantable pump. We felt kind of silly when you rolled in the door because it literally is a little plastic piece. Now this is a sensor. I'll show you a pump site. It doesn't look a whole lot different. Sits right on top of the skin and you rip it up. It goes underneath the skin, a little cannula goes underneath the skin about two millimeters, three millimeters. So it's very small and minute. And they change it themselves every three months. Nothing is implantable. Sensor sites, they were these because they don't give any insulin for about seven days, seven to ten days. If you look FDA approval, it's about seven. I've seen them pushed a little longer. Side effect to pushing it is what? Accuracy. Accuracy and infection. So, you know, I have a, an educator I work with who just watches it constantly. And once it starts getting red, then she pulls it and her accuracy. So, to that point, these are great pieces of technology, but if the sensor reads right there, the sensor reads 400, you're like, I feel fine, and I was just 100. You know, it's still a piece of technology. It can still fail. They still need to be able to check their blood sugars and know how. And that's some of the things we see now. We get them going on technology so soon, we forget the basics. So we still have to go back to the basics. Yeah. So my cousin has a pump that when it gets too low, it sends an alert to his wife and his parents. Is that something most pumps can do now with sending phone stuff? Yep. Yeah. So this one, and that's what this one is showing you. This is a phone that it's sending it to. I had a student actually once who had a brother in Texas, I think was her brother, and she had his Dexcom on her phone here in Montana. I was like, your brother is crazy. Because then she would be calling him as the nurse, like, did you? What'd you do with that picture? I'm like, oh. So, to the point though of that's also the issue. So now it's great for mom and dad to see it, but mom and dad are also calling the school nurse. Like, what did you do with that blood sugar? How are you going to respond to that? But they're not even at that school. Our school nurses, even in Billings Public Schools, are covering in one like one day at my child's school. He has one nurse that covers four schools in that day. So they're not there every. You know, they can't watch all these trends all the time either. So there's a lot of, there's just a lot behind it. That's what it comes down to. So that's monitoring blood sugars 24-7, and that's the benefit to it, is knowing how to connect the dots and how we can treat things. 
Why would I do a continuous CGM is continuous glucose monitor? This, these are the slides not in your thing. But we have seen per studies, and it varies a little, of course, study to study and who funded the study. I mean, if I can teach you anything research-wise, is always looking back at that when you go. But A1C reduction on average of a 1.3%, okay, just by wearing that continuous glucose monitor. And it could be even more. Um, again, it's teaching you where have you been, where are you now, and where are you going. I like that's a Dr. Seuss discussion. Um, okay, so that's the little sensor they're wearing, okay? Right here, it's relaying. This was the first insulin pump. That was the size of it. Made by Medtronic. With a backpack. San Diego, California is Medtronic's diabetes. So Medtronic, of course, is a large company. Um, does diabetes defibrillators, does all sorts of things. So if you ever Google them, you'll have to pick the, the area you want to see. But um, they have, the cool thing is in their, their um, entryway, they have their progression of their pumps from when they started to now. And it's pretty cool to see where they have come. So this is the latest and greatest, I'll go back to the last one, the latest and greatest Medtronic pump. So they've come from a backpack that who knows what it was really delivering to this is the pump now. So this is the latest and greatest, and yes, it looks like this pump, um, it's about this big, this wide. It's a little bit thicker than the old ones, which I'm not excited about, but here's the sensor site that they wear on top of them. This pump is a sensor and a pump together. So what that means is a pump is simply an insulin delivery device. So it's giving their insulin. It's giving this basal insulin, and it's also giving this bolus insulin. Now they have to put, and we're going to talk about this, they have to put their carbohydrates into the pump, so how much they eat, because that's how you figure out, that's what insulin covers, is the carbs we eat. Protein doesn't raise our blood sugars, um, but the carbs do. This newest pump is the closest thing we have to what we call a closed-loop system, meaning that it, it it delivers and adjusts the insulin based on what our bodies are doing, okay? So this pump will shut off and or beep when they get too low, and it will, and then it will turn back on two hours later when they get a little higher. Um, and or they can get into what they call auto mode, and when their blood sugars get a little high, it delivers insulin. When it gets, it, it self-adjusts. It's kind of like a little float in there, is what I always think of it as. There is what they call the tandem pump. They all deliver insulin. This one will soon be paired up with Dexcom. But it, again, just, it, it depends. This is a touch screen. So kids who are like cool, want new technology, touch screen, it's colored. I mean, I know that seems simple, but they're gonna live with this for their lives. Once they get a pump, typically that's their pump for five years. Now they're covered by warranty, but if they don't like it, I think there's like a 30-day return policy on some of them, but my point being, they are with that pump for the next five years. Um, you know, as you can see, the face of the pump gives them their, this is that graph of what their blood sugars have been doing, and they can size it out to the last six hours, the last 12 hours, 24 hours. Um, oh, I did that in my last class too. 
Sorry, I'm not done. Um, the pump, what's the, the, the beauty of a pump, and you will see uh, it, a lot of kids and adults, but a lot of kids on pumps, insurance covers them, Medicaid covers them. Um, sensors, that's where you're hit and miss for insurances to cover. <clears throat> but typically, Medicare just started covering sensors, so usually Medicaid follows that as well. Um, because we have seen the A1C reduction at 1.3, and we have to look at the long-range effect. So what do we look at long-range? If we can bring A1Cs down, what are we looking at? Less what? Damage. Exactly. So we're looking at less microvascular, macrovascular damage when they're older to potentially reduce healthcare costs in the long run. That's our whole goal. Um, I remember when I started going to diabetes camp that first year, out of a cabin of 10 kids, I maybe had one kid on an insulin pump. He was the quote oddball of the group. He had a pump, which was nice because. When they get to camp, they're not doing anything they normally would. So diabetes camp is not, come to camp and we're going to teach you how to count carbs and we're going to teach you. Teach. It is not that. It is come to camp and you're going to do everything like every, it's, it's more of this social, everybody's cool because everybody's checking. It's cool to check your blood sugars at camp. It's cool to have diabetes at camp because we all do. And we're all checking at the same time and we're all comparing numbers and we're all measuring our food. And so yes, they're learning, but not anywhere near like, okay, now you take your test on how many carbs are in. No, nothing. Read this label. No. <clears throat> they're biking, they're hiking, they're camping, they're whatever. Um, then by the time I had left camp, there was only one kid, or left nine years later, maybe one kid without a pump. Everybody had a pump then. And they are indestructible. I mean, kids would... You'd wake up and the kids on the top bunk, their pump would be hanging over the edge of the bed, you know, and you'd put it back up and blood sugars were fine through the night. The nice thing about a pump is we can immediately shut down their insulin or lower it right then and there so that maybe if they've been more active than they've ever been in their life and blood sugars are running low, we don't have to be shoving food at them all night long, which that first year we did. The pump, the beauty, it doesn't lie. So when they bring that logbook into me, they've handwritten and they check four times a day and it's perfect. I download their pump and it tells me every time they put a blood sugar into their pump, when they change their site, when they put carbs in. Um, yeah, I can tell. And they know that. They know that we're going to look at it. This is a scatter plot of those blood sugars for about the past two weeks. So we can kind of try to assimilate with them what we can do to change. Um, let me show you. Why don't we take like a, I don't know, five minute break. Get up, stretch. Get this uploaded.
show you a couple pictures that'll kind of highlight that where it goes sure. okay. but yeah you have it usually for three days at a time wow. and then you change it like before diabetes, it's just always there. 
I was diagnosed when I was two. I picked her up one uh, afternoon. The teacher commented that Molly sure was cranky and cried a lot today. And um, she said she was thirsty. Did I think she had diabetes? I didn't even know what diabetes was. It didn't occur to me. I called Molly's godmother, who actually <coughs> happens to be a type 1 diabetic herself. And she said, and I quote, run, don't walk to the doctor, Molly has diabetes. It was devastating. We immediately went to Children's Healthcare of Atlanta and received two days of training in um, reading food labels, meal planning, uh, how to count carbohydrates when you're out at a restaurant, how do you go about you know, counting carbohydrates and so forth. So the, the diabetes educators at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta were just really just amazing resources for us because we knew nothing. Tap, 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 tap. When I wake up, I check my blood. Before I go to school, I usually check my blood. Before we have snack, I check my blood. At the end of the day, I check my blood again. And I do a shot every night. It's just kind of a part of my life now. I mourn the loss of spontaneity, the ability to run out to the ice cream truck because you got to check your blood sugar. Molly, if it's too high, you can't run out to the ice cream truck, or you can go get an ice cream, but you have to save it for later until we bring your blood sugar back into a normal range. If my brother just goes to get something to eat, and like a, a cookie or something, and I'm just like, can I have one? And no, you can't. Clap, move, over. Oftentimes you hear diabetes and you think, oh, this person must uh, need to lose weight, a little exercise, perhaps some oral medication, or she'll, my daughter, for instance, she'll outgrow it. So there's a lot of misconception about this disease out there. We have to give Molly additional insulin. For her, though, it's life and death. Heart failure, loss of vision. Ultimately, you could have circulatory issues and lose a limb. Managing her diabetes before school. It was time for her first shot by myself. I'll never forget it. She was two and she's running away from me and, you know, of course, scared for her life. And I picked her up and I put my leg up on the kitchen counter and I threw her over my leg so that I could shove a, a syringe. And that's just counter to anything that mother's instinct tells you that you have to put your child through that. And it was going to be multiple times each day, every day, until when? Until there's a cure? Um, so that, that was the punch in the gut. Sometimes I think about like what my life would be like without diabetes. And so that makes me really want to find a cure. That's where we are today, striving to find the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, um, which is a cure for diabetes. And um, we're still trying to find that rainbow. H-O-T-T-O-G-O. -O. She's an inspiration to me. She's an inspiration to kids her age. She handles it beautifully with grace.
there. Um, so obviously, and not that any of you know, in her drawer, she was on a pump too, because she had some pump supplies in there. Uh, but just think about, I mean, that's just for her daily life. Think about, um, you know, when they go to travel and, and where they go and, you know, things like making sure that your insulin prescription is at a national chain pharmacy, simple as that seems. Totally counter to me as a small town Montana girl taking a business away from somebody local. But if you have it at a national chain pharmacy, when you go to Arizona, when you go to California for vacation, your insulin vial drops and breaks. You can go get one. You're always on file. So little things like that that could make the difference in their vacations even. Making sure you have extra supplies. What if your pump breaks down? All those things. So they have the basal insulin we've talked about <coughs> that they're giving. Then their bolus insulin. When they give bolus insulin, it has to be done based on the carbohydrates they eat and then based on what, how high their blood sugar is. So these kids are such good mathematicians, or they become such good mathematicians, because they have to figure all this out. Now, the pump does a lot of this work for them once they get on the pump. It does all this math. But they really need to know how to do it, because you know what? A pump is a piece of technology. It can break, too. So for example, and there's big, fancy correction ratios, which I'm not going to get into. It's this whole big math math. Uh, problem, equation, that's what I'm looking for, to figuring out correction and carb ratios. But for this is just for an example. So little Sally has a correction of one unit of insulin covers 50 points. For every 50, she's above 100. So her target is 100. And I'll give you an example. So she's going to bring her blood sugar down. Her blood sugar they have deemed falls. One unit will bring her blood sugar down 50 points. Her carb ratio is one unit of insulin per 15 grams of carb. So for every 15 grams of carbohydrate she eats, she takes one unit. So she's going to eat a turkey sandwich plain. We're not going to put any mustard on it, uh, just because that'll add a little, so to make it simple. Bag of chips, a Costco apple, only because I say that because they're ginormous. Lettuce salad, water to drink. How much insulin should she take? So here's little Sally, who's eight years old. She's going to sit down at the lunchroom table with all her buddies who are just gabbing a mile an hour shoving food in, and she's going to have to know how much insulin she should take for this food she eats. So she knows, or mom has written it on a piece of paper for her, that her piece of bread is 15 grams of carb per piece of bread. That Costco apple is probably 30 grams. Bag of chips, she figured out because she read the label on the back of the chips at eight years old. Water is zero, lettuce salad is zero, dressing well, we're not going to count it today. She's about 90 grams of carb. So therefore, she's six units, because she was a one unit for 15 grams of carb. But her blood sugar right now is 150. So we want her goal to be 100. So we subtract 250 minus 100, we get 150. Her corrections are every 50 units, or excuse me, 50 points above 100. So she gets three units. So therefore, she is going to take nine units of insulin. And she is going to figure this out every day every meal that she's doing. Um, we have to remember literally everybody, everybody <coughs> is so different. Everybody responds to insulin different um, and I say that uh, even in different places they give it. Um, a lot of people would have a, would because of the thigh being so much more muscular, uh, you would think you would have some you would absorb it faster because that muscle would uptake your insulin faster. Um, but I had a young girl that 
was using her legs and she was completely, we had to double her insulin when she used her legs. So everybody is completely different. Everybody responds to food differently. Some little guys, they eat a whole bag of grapes. Grapes are usually the, one of the best ones and it just skyrockets their blood sugars. Um, versus uh, bananas usually do too, but for this little guy, bananas didn't do a thing. You know, they didn't skyrocket it as much as the next. Um, different responses to sites of absorption, just like I said. Um, some, some kids will go high with exercise, so blood sugars immediately go up, just due to the um, cortisol levels, stress levels of the activity, the adrenaline, blood sugars will go high. But eventually, once they get settled in, blood sugars will drop. But how when you're playing a 60-minute basketball game, how would you then know how much insulin to get? <coughs> I used to have a young patient who you could tell what her blood sugars looked like by the way she shot the ball. Because those days were where it was a really anxiety-ridden game. I used to have a young girl whose blood sugars, why practices drove her high, I don't know. But then game day, she ran as steady as a rock. Adam Morrison, for anybody who's familiar with Gonzaga, he played for Gonzaga years ago. He had a regimen, had type 1, he had a regimen for about 12 hours prior to game as to how he would manipulate his blood sugars and what he would eat in order to get him into game mode and decent. I had athletes who, depending if it was a weightlifting day versus an actual activity day, they would vary how much Gatorade to water versus game days. It, it's, a, it's a lot of work. Other kids have some what we call delayed hypoglycemia where they don't actually experience their hypoglycemia for maybe till the next morning, which is scary. They went to a, a birthday party and were at Get Air trampoline park all night. Blood sugar looked fine when they went to bed, even a little bit high, and in the morning blood sugar was 40. Well, it's because they had that delayed. It didn't hit them right away. It waited to hit them overnight. So educating parents about that, like, yeah, their blood sugar looked okay, but you better check in the middle of the night after all that activity. Um, there's always so much more to their story. Um, you know, this can really be a single out disease um, causing them, depending on, you know, and it depends on family situations, it depends on so much can lead them to a depressive state. Why do I have this? This is lifelong. Can cause them anxiety, you know. If mom and dad are writing them all the time about their blood sugars and what they should look like and, you know, maybe not letting them have the childhood. Uh, or, or there's conflicts between parents and kids. Um, we had a young girl who had what we call diabolemia. So she actually used her diabetes to lose weight. She just quit taking her insulin prior to prom so she could fit into that dress and not take her insulin. Blood sugars would be high. She ran the risk of being admitted um, to the hospital, but she was found and determined to look good in her dress. Um, ADHD, you know, they can't even sit through your appointment, let alone think about counting carbs after they eat a giant pizza because their metabolism is just crazy. But so all these issues, um, and so talking to them about whether it's medications, a counselor, something of that nature. We start looking at their cholesterol panels at a young age, um, typically in their teens, sometimes younger, um, especially in those with type 2 diabetes, specifically those triglycerides. 
blood pressure. Um, we're trying to prevent any of that micro and macrovascular disease. Finances, I talked about those that budget their insulin. And then the social aspect, it affects everyone. I mean, letting them go to spend the night at a sleepover, you know, and making sure they have the contact numbers and know. Are these parents going to call me or check them? Or um, do they have extra, extra snacks? Um, I just heard a story about a, a girl who was traveling on a bus. She was on a team um, in which she was young. The mom was telling me this story that she had a low, her, they were in a tournament, and it was like track or something, and she was only at a throwing event. So the parents didn't think much of it, that it would be that much of a, you know, she wouldn't expend that much energy is what they thought. So they didn't go to this track meet. And the coach called in the middle of the night because one of the girls got up and this, her, you know, bedmate was, she was acting funny. And somebody checked her and she was low. And the coach said over the phone to the mom, we've called 911 and we're going to give her some insulin. And mom was like, no, don't, don't give her insulin, don't do anything. Come to, you know, come to find out the coach was also shook up and he actually, that's not, he meant we're going to feed her. We're going to give her her glucagon, but it came out as insulin. So then it freaked the mom and the dad out. They were both on the phone, and you know they're 300 miles away at this. So there's just a lot that um, goes into this. Um, we have to think about complications and preventing those. Unfortunately, remember back to when you were 12 and 13? Did you look to when you were 18, 25, 30? Those people were old. I'm old in my kids' eyes. They don't, they can't think about, if I don't take care of my blood sugars, I'm gonna lose my foot. They, no. So we have to make sure we try to get it on their level, keep educating them about those things. Um, but remembering that, that that isn't in there. They just wanna know who they're gonna go hang out with at the football game tomorrow night. Not, I'm gonna lose my foot if I don't take care of this. Um, variable blood sugars, it, it, as you can see, this might be a total pattern that we see. We're going to do some glucagon training. So glucagon is a, quote, medication. Um, and I didn't bring my glucagon kit. It usually comes in a little kit. It's, either, it's usually bright orange or red. It's actually a powder in a vial, comes with a syringe that is saline. And the glucagon, so glucagon is something they don't produce anymore out of that pancreas, out of the liver. So what this does is when they have a really low blood sugar. Now, educating the patient on this, the actual child, does nothing for you. Because if they can give their own glucagon, they don't need it. This is for mom, coach, teacher, sibling to do. So this is a child who is, who is um, not responsive. If you fed them something, they would aspirate it. So they're that low that they're not responsive. So you would mix up this glucagon, and then and you're going to educate the patient, the parent, how to how to mix this up because it's not just something I pull out and give. I mix it up, and you have to remember this is this is a traumatic time. The the child is not making sense. They're potentially on the verge of a seizure, um, and they're trying to do all this. And you should roll it, not shake it. All these little intricacies to it. Um, you know, we're trying to protect their eyes, their kidneys, their feet. Um, and socially uh, protect them as well. We look at pregnancy 
And I know you're thinking, hello, these are these are children I'm talking to. What do you mean you're talking about pregnancy? Uh, I had adolescents who were sexually active, and so reminding them that you know if you did by chance say we're talking about birth control with them, but if you and mom is sitting right there and I'm having this discussion, but if you get pregnant and you have an A1C right now of 11 percent, the chances of your baby A surviving or without any complications are minimal. So we really need to work on getting your, your blood sugars down, you know, into, and fortunately, this one girl that I was having the conversations with, she did have a child at the age of, she was 18 by that time, um, but A1C had fallen to at least eight by then, whereas she had been 12. Yeah. Um, is there a higher risk of like certain complications depending on type one or type two? It's usually depending on their high elevation of their blood sugars. So usually if type one is high, so you see more complications with type 1 then? I wouldn't necessarily say that. It's their control. How well their control is, is where you're looking at the complications. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Um, the future, we hope we find a pancreas transplant, stem cell transplant. The issue with pancreas transplants right now is that typically in order to get a new pancreas, you have to get new, you have to have failing kidneys. And then they do a kidney pancreas transplant together. Okay, well doesn't that seem a little counter, I know, it's a little counterintuitive, doesn't? Let's wait till our, our kidneys are failing before we give a new pancreas. But, um, closed loop pump system, I've talked about that, we're almost there. They're still working on new insulins. There is an inhalable insul inhaled insulin out there called a Frieza, not really using it. It's only in two doses, especially for kids because they need to be able to vary it so much. The inhaled insulin also, there's still studies out there looking at the, the lungs. I was involved in a study when an uh, inhaled insulin first came out. I remember going to Florida for the, the investigator trials and I will never forget, they pulled out this inhaler. And when we think inhaler, we think of this little albuterol inhaler that we, okay, this inhaler, literally, the closest thing I can explain it to is a bomb. It was huge. <laughs> <laughs> and kids were supposed to, and adults, pull it out before they ate, taking this cup. Well, didn't last, for, in fact, we didn't even enroll anyone in the study because they found out there were lungs with that medication at that time. So there's just all these as they try new things. I'm like, really, I'm gonna try to explain to some kid or adult, you need to pull this out of your purse before you eat. I mean, they won't check their blood sugar, but under the table or give their insulin, yet they're gonna try to inhale on this that someone's probably gonna come in and arrest them um, for what they're using. So toxin, and like I said, there's, there's always new stuff coming long-acting. None of these, though, I bring them up, but um, pediatric studies are hard to get accomplished because just like doing studies in pregnant women, there's not many that allow um, for kids. I will say trial net. What that is, is that's a study actually done across the world. Um, we were one of the centers, and we're still doing it, um, where we're looking at the family disposition of type 1. So what it does is if, if you have a first-degree relative with type 1, you can go in and have your blood drawn. If you're over the age of 45, you can only have it done once. Um, I should say between the ages of 26 and 45, one time. And then 26 and under, I think is what the restrictions were. You did it every year. 
And what they're looking at is they're, they're hoping that if at some point any one of those people converts to type 1, they go back and they look at how the blood, you know, what changed in this blood sample that might lead us to be able to find a cure um, or prevention or anything of that nature. We did have one little boy, there were a family of four boys. Um, two of them had type 1 diabetes. Um, third one ended up being diagnosed. They put the little brother in and sure enough, this was the fourth of boys, fourth of four boys, um, ended up catching his diabetes by doing this because his A1C came back at 7%. So we prevented him from ending up in the hospital and all the things associated with um, being hospitalized. Um, like I said, if at all you want to get involved, see more, American Diabetes Association, um, the Montana Youth Retreat, usually held in July. Um, last year it was actually end of August, right, for, right before school started. But it's a week-long camp where they take 80 kids with type 1, some occasional type 2s, um, and just have fun. Like I said, it's not a sit down and let's learn how to count your cards. Tour de Cure, it is a bike ride usually held out of three forks where it's a six mile like kid ride, 12 mile, 25 and 100 mile, uh, 50 mile, 100 mile bike ride um, supporting diabetes and those who ride with diabetes have a red rider, they call them the red riders um, or Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation as well. So one question someone had and I was going to point that out. So when they wear an insulin pump, I didn't, I guess my picture isn't very good. This little spot right here is what we call a reservoir. We fill that full of insulin, usually up to 300 units of insulin. So it's right there in that one, or it hooks in the top of this one, or it hooks over here on the side. They don't show it very well um, of this one. About 300 units of insulin. They change their pump site every three days. The issue is if they don't change their pump site, they can run the risk of infection and then higher blood sugars because those receptor insulin receptor cells in that area just get inundated and can't accept any more insulin. So they need to change every three days. So it runs from it. It runs from that reservoir. There is a little tubing that then hooks on their pump that then hooks to this like a site on top of their skin. You put it in with a needle because somehow we got to get it into you. But then we pull the needle out, and they're left with about a, a 5 16th inch cannula underneath the skin. And when I say cannula, um, it is not like IV, 18 gauge IV size. We're looking 22, 24 size um, cannula underneath the skin to deliver insulin. Any questions? When they switch the site, is that when they refill the insulin? Yes. Yep. So then they refill. Um, and, and I had, you know, I worked with a doctor who spent a majority of his summer golfing in Arizona or out in the heat playing, and that insulin did not go bad. I mean, it, it is insulin, good or bad. You know, the things you have to educate patients on, don't let it freeze, don't let it get too hot. So even in the house, making sure it's not sitting up in the window, getting too hot. Um, insulin does not need to be, I always say extra insulin, keep it in the refrigerator but insulin can be left at room temperature. And even for your patients that come in, insulin pulled right out of the fridge and given stings, okay? It's, and it's hard to, harder to push in, especially if they're using large amounts. So if you leave it more at room temperature, roll it between your hands, and then give it. Yeah. Why do they do that at the hospitals then, if they have all these open vials, and they keep them extremely cold, and then give them? 
Well, you would be best to not give it cold. I just don't know why that was the protocol. That's not ideal. For safety reasons, too. Mm. So they know when it came out and used. Other questions? Yeah. Um, Dependable is how I would say, <laughs> and variable. You never know. Um, for example, that one girl who you know would show me her blood sugar is perfect, and then have an A1C of fourteen percent. I had been talking to her all through her high school career about getting a pump. She was a perfect pump candidate. You could do this without it because she did not want anyone to know she had diabetes, which was also horrible. And I tell them, I don't expect you to walk into your college roommate and say, hi, I'm Joe Blow and I have diabetes. No. But they need to know. Uh, because we unfortunately had a patient who was a, a freshman at college who passed away in his dorm room um, from the hyperglycemic event uh, related to activities the night before that he had undergone. Um, but... That same girl, the minute she graduated from high school, the next, literally the next week, called me to get an insulin pump. And she went from an A1C of 14, and by the time I had left practice, her A1C was down to 8. You know, she, it's variable. And some, I can't, some kids, we always hope they see the light at the end of the tunnel. And it, it, some kids, it's with great supportive families, and they're still ornery about it, and vice versa. It's just, like I said, it's all about baby steps with them. It really is. Any other questions? How many times have you seen diabulimia in your practice? Seen it that I could say, yes, you have it, or would I maybe a couple? Is it out there more often? Absolutely. There's a And fortunately, they, they get away with it before they're admitted. Mm -hmm. That's the issue. They're doing it. They're just not admitting up to it. And it's sad. Because we've got two, in, in the long run, we've got two chronic illnesses. Because some of them don't, don't quit at high school. You know, that, that bulimic part of it continues on. And it's a, it's a mental disorder that I'm than trying to deal with as well. And it's it's tough. Definitely not one of my favorites. Anybody else? Well, there you have it. I'll let Stacy. Teresa's schedule, and I looked at Teresa's schedule, and I'm like, oh, man, I messed this up. 
And so I spent um, a week and a half flipping the weeks after um, Thanksgiving, when in all actuality I had the craft to begin with. So, that being said, um, I have a bottle of wine for Teresa as an apology. I don't know, do I get you guys a keg, or what is that, how does that look? I don't know if that's legal. Um, anyways, uh, this is what we're going to do. So, um, you have your clinical grade for me, follow that along, um, that will be what your peds looks like. For OB, what will happen is, um, I'm seeing spots right now, Group C and D will do your presentations on November 28th, and um, she is going to post this if she hasn't already, and then groups A and B will be doing your presentations on December 5th. If something comes up and your schedule is wonky and you cannot make some of these changes work, please let me know and we'll figure something out. I absolutely um, apologize, thank you. Um, to you guys about a bajillion times. It totally was my fault. Um, so, mia culpa. Sorry. Okay, so, Angelica, you have something to say? Questions about that? Don't forget to what? Oh, dress like minions. God. Okay. Uh, let's see. Hey, Angelica, could you give me a? Would you give me a hand? Sorry, give me a hand. <laughs> <laughs> 